Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include FHFA's Loan Level Price Adjustment Matrix, Part 1 of an interview with Funding Shield's Adam Chathowry on protecting against wire and title fraud, and the latest inflation report. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mortgage technology for today's modern lenders. Nexus origination allows lenders and borrowers to complete the mortgage process from anywhere. With a flexible digital loan application, fast prequal and pre-approval capabilities, and a simplified mobile disclosure process, hundreds of lenders rely on Simple Nexus to deliver world-class home lending services. Learn more at simplenexus.com. As rumors swirl, and you know what they say about rumors, about the FHFA rescinding recent changes to its loan-level price adjustment matrix this afternoon, I received this note. Quote, Do you think that the CFPB is wise to some lenders switching referral sources to switch commission structures? Like when a loan comes in off the street and the price is quoted with 1.25 for the LO and the client box, so then the loan is referred in-house and the LO commission gets knocked down to 0.5 to keep the deal? End quote. Yes, I've heard that they are, and the CFPB is probably aware of those kinds of things too. But you should check with your lawyer or compliance department to see if that runs afoul of LO comp rules. Whether the original street LO receives zero commission when a loan goes to the in-house team or call center or is paid a lower commission, you want to get qualified counsel about this. You can always submit a regulatory inquiry to the CFPB. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome on to the show Funding Shield's Adam Chadhari to talk about protecting against wire and title fraud. He's the president of Funding Shield, a risk management financial technology firm focused on wire title fraud prevention, used on over $2.5 trillion in transactions to date. He's been an executive, investment banker, trader, and leadership team member at firms such as Goldman Sachs, Greenwich Capital, Royal Bank of Scotland, and others that have provided solutions to top global financial institutions, including private equity firms, hedge funds, asset managers, and banks globally. He's originated, structured, and delivered in excess of $50 billion in financing solutions, hedging solutions, and new products to the market. He currently focuses on executing the strategy, operations, and client solutioning to drive Funding Shield's award-winning technology where they protect mortgage lenders, investors, warehouse banks, and real estate participants from wire fraud, title fraud, and compliance risks. You tell me a little bit about your background, how you got to Funding Shield, and what you're working on over there. My career started in working in a servicer while I was in college. I went to, to a finance school in Boston called Bentley. So I was still in school. I was literally working in a servicer as like a project manager because I was so young. Everyone would open up their, everyone would spill their beans to me and I would really find out what was going on. Um, kind of, you know, they, they presented me as like an intern slash summer project manager. And I literally found out where all the money was going, which was not towards where it was supposed to be. Um, and that really helped me understand kind of mortgage servicing flows that got me to Goldman. At Goldman, I was in New York uh, on the trading and capital market side, um, working with kind of asset liability management is probably the best way of thinking about it for very large insurance companies, structured finance companies, and, and kind of other specialty finance companies. Um, and then from there, I went to Greenwich Capital, um, which was at the time a treasury market dealer, as well as a subprime bond shop. So they did a lot of subprime mortgage uh, issuance. And I built out the technology 
the systems, the trading capabilities and traded products around mortgage-backed securities to CDOs to, you know, airline leasing structures, very structured, intensive sort of stuff that required a lot of understanding of collateral, as well as creating new markets. So kind of giving new market participants an understanding of the risk so that people could price things and trade them, right? So that's kind of, or else everything just kind of is done bilaterally. So we're trying to create new markets is kind of where I'm good at. And then I did a whole host of other stuff that that our Greenwich Capital got bought up by RBS, which is the, at the time the fourth largest bank in the world. Um, so that's why I was living between London and New York. We also had that big behemoth of a facility. If you've ever been on the train in Stamford, you probably see the big RBS building on uh, the Metro North. Um, so there I helped provide financing solutions to banks globally to manage their mortgage exposure, structured products exposure, bad MBS mortgage-backed security portfolios that we're not paying or we're not paying off, um, and, you know, MBIA mortgage insurance claims, figuring out how to get value out of those. So really, really kind of structured stuff that was problematic and trying to figure out how to get somebody to finance it, to buy it, to sell it. And the kind of common theme was there wasn't a lot of good data on the underlying assets, the underlying mortgage pools. People didn't know how things were closed. People didn't understand how things were created. So there was a lot of fundamental lack of trust. A lot of the things that the markets worked towards since you know, 2012, 2013, where we have day one certainty, we have certain verifications and reps being made by third parties into the closing. It's a lot harder to defraud an investor, but it's also a lot harder to make a defunct loan that doesn't go through certain guidelines. And it was back then. And the one piece that still has a lot of Kind of risk is this closing agent, right? The party, the party that's handling the funding, the closing, the settlement. It's still a party that has all the data, that has all the documentation, it has all the money, and they have access to recording instruments, meaning they can effectuate a recording or transfer of property, right? Right. So they can record property. And so the FBI use a terminology saying there's unsupervised access of that party. And that's how they feel about settlement and title companies. That's obviously a very negative view, not giving them any credence or trust. And we're not here to say they're all bad people. But what we're trying to say is there's not a lot of ongoing oversight of these parties. There's also a lot of, again, data, money, documents, sensitive information, funds going to these parties, which makes them a right for, for fraud, as well as all these other sorts of cyber frauds. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and the products. I think that's really where we want to go is... Here's the data, here's the issue, here's the products that we have that attack the issue and how we save our clients money. Because that's the last piece. If I don't talk about that on this podcast, no one's gonna give a crap, right? The cost the cost is the issue. How do we help drive savings? And the two biggest drivers for that are one, we create an effect, we create an effective data model to track with live data, source data, the key attributes that are required from a compliance and risk perspective to make you feel comfortable that you're working with legitimate parties. And then two, we actually optimize the workflow, the closing review, the verification of the documentation, things that other people have to do <clears throat> as part of the full closing process. We take that on because if we don't do that, we're not doing our job. We can't say that, hey, we've prevented a fraud. If we don't know, we're even talking about the same transaction, the data doesn't line up between multiple source systems like title systems and lender systems. One advertising campaign that stands out to me is from apple where they're essentially saying your data is secure with us apple is secure and people feel that way when there's been data breaches at other big companies so i, I guess i want to ask you how do you make clients feel secure there's mm -hmm. there's 
these wires going on. There's there's title fraud that's happening. How are you giving people faith and a, a sense of security and, and actually backing that up? Yeah, so that's a great question. Thanks, Robbie. Um, the, the first way that we're doing that is we're we're not looking at taking self-attestations. We're not taking somebody's word for something. We're not looking at yesterday's data and assuming it's good today. And I think the key for any risk management and fraud prevention program is the fact that you have to be as close to making your decision with the data that is at that time, right? So the longer decay between information to make a decision and the decision uh, that you're making is the ripe room for fraud to take place. So the first thing we're doing is we're looking at one source data. We're looking to gather it independently, not from parties telling us, yes, I'm good or I've been compliant. No, we can't take that on face value. We have to verify it from multitude of sources. So in our world, given that we're dealing with title fraud and wire fraud, that means going out and collecting data today for a closing that's being reviewed today from numerous sources, whether it's licensing data, background data, uh, information regarding their good standing, their ability to issue um, any litigation, any background issues of these parties that have come up since the last time that maybe our client may have closed with them. So that's the first part is kind of saying, is this party who they say they are? Are they permitted to provide their services? And then verifying that today, and then moving on to, let's talk about the specific transaction we're working on. So we've done a kind of a counterparty analysis, but the differentiating factor we have is we dig into the actual transaction flow and say, look, there's data being transacted between these multitudes of parties across numerous systems, title production systems, LOSs, CRMs, right? All sorts of email servers and endpoints. Are we actually talking about the same transaction? Are we actually talking about a party that carries recourse and coverage from a title insurer or not? And then on top of that, is the bank account where you're sending money actually belong to a person who says they're capable of doing that, confirming they are capable, A, B, confirming that bank account actually belongs to them, not, again, by picking up a phone and you know asking them, right? That's not going to fix the fraud, you know, the flows that we deal with. It's going to the actual depositor institutions and verifying, again, at the source. So a lot of this kind of DeFi discussion in other markets is hinged upon an, an enormous amount of trust amongst parties. So you're talking about European def- you know, decentralized finance. There has to be a lot of trust amongst the parties that come to 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 you know to a transaction or to a workflow. And unfortunately, in our real estate space in the United States, we are a function of the real estate market, right? There's multiple counties. It's a decentralized process. There's thousands, if not eighty-five thousand, is the number of approximately we see in our database of parties that can provide these services from settlement to escrow to closing to title. And then you have all the counties, you have all the lenders on the other side, and then a multitude of systems and insurers. That disparate nature of data and attributes is what requires a synthesization, right? That we have to synthesize, break it down into, okay, this party wants to work with this party in this jurisdiction. That's the whole point of our automation and our data model, right? That requires at a lender, a compliance party, a risk party, a funder, a closer, and sometimes even a finance person working in collaboration to get it right. And so that passing of the baton has a pretty significant cost. That is why we've been picking up the type of clients we've been picking up because we provide a plus, you know, good or bad, pass or fail sort of approach, just like any other milestone to close a loan that a client wants. They want to be able to say, is this party good to work with? Can I fund them? And do I have recourse? Our answer is yes or no. Right. And that's kind of how we build our workflows for our clients backed by that model because that model is what defends our ability to give them that result. But it's also not what they want to, they don't want to have to go through those painstaking efforts 
to build that data model, that ecosystem of live information to generate those cost savings. That it's very hard for them to rationalize all that cost to maintain that level of risk, uh, risk prevention and fraud. Join us tomorrow for part two of this interview. As mentioned earlier in the show, capital markets crews are watching for news from the FHFA that loan level price adjustments will be modified or rescinded. In the meantime, in advance of today's latest CPI inflation news, the yield curve bear flattened and mortgages traded wider yesterday. Put another way, short-term rates rose faster than long-term rates in a harbinger of an economic contraction and mortgage rates didn't fall by as much as treasury yields. The day's $40 billion three-year note sale met spectacular demand with the high yield of 3.695%, stopping through the when-issued yield by nearly three basis points. New York Fed President Williams said that inflation remains too high and that the Fed has not said it is done raising rates. President Biden discussed the debt ceiling with congressional leaders, but House Speaker McCarthy is reportedly opposed to a short-term debt ceiling extension through September. Huh? Opposed to kicking the can down the road? Today's most likely market-moving events include the April CPI release and a $35 billion 10-year Treasury note auction. CPI came in up 0.4% month-over-month and year-over-year up 4.9% with core up 5.5% year-over-year, almost spot-on with predictions. Prior to CPI, the mortgage market digested the latest mortgage applications from the MBA. Mortgage applications responded positively to a drop in rates last week, increasing 6.3% from one week earlier as the Fed signaled a potential pause at the current level for the federal funds rate. Now that the U.S. has released new inflation figures, the question is how long the Fed will be in pause mode when it comes to the Fed funds rate. The Case-Shiller Home Price Index peaked in June of last year, so we're close to having the owner's equivalent rent portion of the CPI fade into the background. However, the labor market remains tight. Last Friday brought strong employment figures, meaning it could be some time and certainly longer than hoped for by those who have been crossing their fingers for rate cuts. The unexpected rise in both U.S. hiring and wages last month increases the chances the Fed will hold interest rates higher for longer and potentially keeps the door open to an 11th straight hike in June. Regardless, the Fed doesn't set mortgage rates, and though eventually lower mortgage rates will help with affordability, they won't solve for a lack of inventory on the market, particularly of existing homes. The dearth of supply will continue to be the primary constraint on home sales through 2023. Later today brings the Treasury budget for April, with the CBO estimating a surplus of $173 billion compared to $308.2 billion a year ago. We begin the day with the 10-year yielding 3.44 after closing yesterday at 3.52% and the two-year at 3.93%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. News from the year 2059, part 3 of 5. The last Castro finally dies at age 112. Cuban cigars can now be imported legally, but President Chelsea Clinton has banned all smoking. The Postal Service raises the price of first-class stamps to $17.89 and reduces mail delivery to Wednesdays only. After an 85-year and $75.8 billion study, turns out that diet and exercise are the keys to weight loss. And global cooling is blamed for the citrus crop failure for the third consecutive year in Mexifornia and Floruba. <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, the homeownership platform that unites the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process into one seamless end-to-end solution. To learn more about Simple Nexus, an Encino company, visit simplenexus.com.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.